0: Well, again, thank you for all of you who have filled out my survey. Appreciate it very much that you are helping me to graduate. As we begin this series on evangelism, I want to read a story to you. This is a story of a group of fishermen who lived in an area surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. Year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their love of fishing and strategies for how to catch the most fish. They even sponsored local and nationwide conferences to discuss fishing, promote fishing, and hear about all the different ways of fishing. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings, which they called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however in fish they organized a board to send out fishermen to where there were many fish the board was formed by those who had great vision and courage to speak about fishing to encourage others to fish and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where fish of different colors lived Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded and were sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Expensive training centers were built to teach fishermen how to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish, they only taught fishing. Some also said they wanted to be part of the fishing group, but they felt called to furnish fishing poles, boats, and other equipment. Others felt their job was to map out patterns of where the fish would swim so that the fishermen could find them. Still others felt it was their role to lead small groups of other fishermen, teaching what the fishing manual said about fishing and holding the others in the group accountable to go out fishing once a week at the crack of dawn. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties— Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. Attending the meetings and small groups about fishing took a considerable amount of time. Some even received ridicule for their choice of profession of fishermen. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were not really fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if month after month, year after year, he goes out and never catches any fish? When Jesus called Peter and Andrew to himself, What did he say? Come follow me and I will make you better people. Come follow me and I will make you churchgoers. Come follow me and I will make you small groupies. Matthew 4.19, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The call to follow Jesus is a call to be fishers of men. Being an evangelist, sharing the gospel is wrapped up in our very identity as Christians. It's a part of who we are. To follow is to fish. And that's why it's been on my heart to have this series on evangelism at Grace on Campus, uh, because... Evangelism isn't something you do on the side. It's not an activity that's optional. It's built into who you are. You and I are fishers of men. So we better get to fishing. Now, let me say up front, as we begin this series, that I am not an expert in evangelism That's not why we're doing this series. Uh, I am not the, the best evangelist in the room. I don't think that I'm the best evangelist in most rooms. So quite contrary to the notion that the guy up here has it all figured out and is evangelizing all the time, uh, I'm preaching this series because this is for me. It's for you, but it's for me. Uh, I'm preaching to myself, and uh, you guys get to listen in. Uh, I, I, I like to evangelize. I enjoy evangelizing, but I don't do it nearly enough. I love the lost, but not nearly enough. And I know this ministry, and you guys love evangelizing, and you guys love the lost, but, but not as the Bible calls you to. And so we're going to spend a few weeks talking about what it means to be fishers of men. Another reason I want to do this series is because at UCLA, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Uh, Right now, you probably know more non-Christians than you ever will. Uh, It's just the reality of life that the older you get uh, as a Christian, the less non-Christians you'll know. You get busier with life. There's greater responsibilities. You get more involved in church and have leadership responsibilities there. And you just know less non-Christians. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that you have to treasure those relationships that you have with non-Christians even more. You have to invest in those relationships even more. And you have to go out of your way to make new friendships with non-Christians. But the reality is that as life goes on as a Christian, you know less non-Christians. And so the amount of non-Christians you know, if you were to graph out your life, would be a pyramid. You know less and less as you go on. But at UCLA, uh, in college, where you guys are at, man, uh, you're, you're right by the stream. And the streams are, are full of fish. Uh, you attend college on a very densely populated campus that is not a commuter school. You guys all live within a 10-minute walk of each other. And, and these students, these classmates, these friends that you have are interested in spiritual things, interested in religion, interested in talking about Christianity and the things of God because they're still figuring out their worldview. They're figuring out their convictions. Hmm, what is it that I really believe? And they want more information. They want all the pieces of the puzzle before they make their decision. And so they're willing to talk to you about spiritual things. And so you're living right by the stream. But as we saw from the illustration, it's still possible to not be a real fisherman. And I think each year in college, you have unique advantages in evangelism. So for instance, those of you who are freshmen, a word to the freshmen. The pyramid is probably the broadest right now. Uh, You probably know more non-Christians than you will ever know. And you have the ability to make new non-Christian friends because you can sit in on a class and you can meet someone on your floor, shake their hand and introduce yourself and they're willing to be your friend. kind of changes in those later years. It's more like people will just be on their phones trying to avoid you. Uh, Sophomores, sophomores out of Out of all the classes, you have the best balance of depth of relationship and free time. Uh, So what I mean by that is last year as a freshman, uh, you had non-Christian friends, but not that deep of a friendship because you were just meeting these people, but you had a lot of free time. Fast forward the clock to next year when you're a junior. You may still have some depth of relationship and you might even be able to deepen it, but your free time's gone. All of a sudden you gotta start getting ready for life after college. So sophomores, you you got a sweet spot. Uh, You got a real sweet spot in terms of depth of relationship. You know these people well and the amount of free time that you have. And most of you are in the dorms and so a meetup is just a swipe away. Juniors, your friends are real. They ain't pretending. Uh, Those friends that were kind of fake in the beginning and just kind of wanted to put their best foot forward, make a good, good first impression, those days are long gone. Nobody's being fake anymore. You guys have known each other for three years and so your friends are real. They're honest. And so if you share the gospel with them, they will tell you, not interested, shoo. But if they're interested, then they'll tell you. And you just have a tremendous opportunity to have a a very open and honest and transparent conversation about spiritual things and the gospel with your friends. Uh, In addition to that, juniors, you have a tremendous opportunity to build in the habit of evangelism to your life. It's true, junior year gets really busy. Probably the jump from sophomore to junior year is the biggest jump in terms of busyness. You got upper divs now. You gotta get serious about finding that job or that internship and prepare for life after college, you're really involved in your clubs, including Grace on Campus. You might even serve in leadership in those. You live in your own apartment. You have to pay bills. You have to figure out how to split the bills with your apartment mates. You're, you're a grown-up now. And, and in a real sense, I, I believe that junior year is your first taste of real life. And so if you can continue the habit of evangelism your junior year, uh, that's building in the habit of evangelism to real life. And if you can evangelize your junior year with all the busyness and all the craziness, most likely you can evangelize for life. So build that habit in now. Seniors, it's, it's almost time to say goodbye. You, you only have 10 weeks left and you're, you're thinking, what's he gonna say to us? Uh, what can we do in terms of evangelism? What what difference can we make? And I would argue a great one uh, that you can have a great impact. Because here's your chance, seniors, to turn college friends into lifelong friends. Now's this pivotal time where these friends that you've made over the past three and a half years are they going to be just the friends that you look back on? Those are my college friends. Or are you going to keep these relationships? for the rest of your life. So here's the thing, spring quarter, 10 weeks left. If you drop the ball, get so busy, gotta take your senior portraits, you gotta find that job, you gotta get ready for grad school, this is gonna be the craziest quarter of your life. If you get so busy with all of that and you don't invest in your non-Christian friends, and there's this big gap in your relationship, spring quarter, most likely when you graduate, you're not talking to them again. Now God is good, and he may bring them back into your life, and you may have opportunities afterwards, but most likely, if you quit that relationship now and quit investing in it, then you're not gonna talk to them again. But, but on the opposite end, if you take this last quarter to meet up with these friends, invest in them, show them you care, show them you genuinely love them, then you can take that momentum into next year and into the rest of your life. So here's this golden opportunity to make your college friends lifelong friends and thus have many opportunities to share the gospel with them in the future. So I think all of you have a unique opportunity for evangelism. Tonight, I want to look at scripture to draw motivation to take these opportunities. I want to look at the motivations for evangelism, and we're going to look at three. Three motivations for evangelism. What is it that motivates us, provokes us, inspires us to do what we so often in our flesh don't want to do? open up our mouths, preach the gospel to someone. Uh, There's three that we're going to go over today, and I believe that there are many more in Scripture, but I do think that these are the three main ones. Today we're going to look at the glory of God, obedience to God, and love for the lost. These three motivators for evangelism the glory of god obedience to god and love for the lost let's first look at the glory of god the westminster shorter catechism begins with the biggest statement in the world doesn't get bigger than this man's chief end is to glorify god and enjoy him forever friends it does not get bigger it does not get more foundational. It does not get more ultimate than that. This is the reason we exist. This is why God created us. This is why we have breath in our lungs, to glorify the one who has created us. After all, he is worthy. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Psalm 145, 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 43, 6-8, God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God is worthy of any and all praise we could possibly muster. God is worthy of every tongue on earth. Worshipping him and every knee bowing down to him, giving him total allegiance. And evangelism makes sinners into worshipers. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the cross of his Son. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us our sins, to give us new life, to give us a transformed life so that those who place their faith in him will be saved, redeemed, reconciled to God, and as scripture tells us, a brand new creature. When someone believes the gospel, they are transformed from a hater of God to a lover of God, from a worshiper of self And a worshiper of things of this world to a worshiper of the one true God. Their life is now lived to the glory of God. You preach the gospel to someone, they believe, they join your church, and now you stand next to them as they sing these praise songs that we've just sung. They believe and they pray to God, they depend on Him for their every need. They believe. And they read the scriptures and they search the scriptures and understand how to please him, how to make every decision to his glory. Evangelism is the only way that man can live out his chief end. The gospel is the only message that we can bring to people where they will begin to live out their chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That hymn that we sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Kind of a weird hymn, I've always thought. You know, especially if you start picturing it in your head, just tongues everywhere. Uh, they we're singing, all oh, if only I had a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Because he's worthy. Worthy of, of all those tongues singing his praise. Guys, do you realize that in evangelism, this doesn't have to be some weird imaginative thing. It doesn't have to be a dream. It doesn't have to be a hypothetical situation. In evangelism, you're bringing the gospel to tongues who blaspheme God and the gospel is the power of God to transform that tongue into one that praises him. Adding tongue after tongue after tongue to sing our great praise. Redeemer's praise. So God is glorified when we tell others the gospel and they believe it because their voice is now added to the hallelujah chorus of the church. But what if you preach and they don't believe? Your message falls on deaf ears. You share the gospel and they get upset at you, they get offended. What happens then? God is glorified. God is glorified still. Psalm ninety six two to three Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. First Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. God is glorified in being known. God is glorified in simply being known. And in evangelism, you're making him known. You're making his excellencies known. You're making his great love, his tender mercy, his uncompromising justice, and his amazing grace known. And so even if that person doesn't believe, they heard something, oh, they heard something, and they understand something of the greatness of God. And with your tongue, you proclaimed his excellencies, and he is glorified because he was made known. Every time you share the gospel, you glorify God because sharing the gospel in and of itself glorifies God. Evangelism is never vain or empty. So go for it. Scripture guarantees that if you are bold enough to loosen your lips, tell someone about Jesus, you will glorify God. Motivation number two, obedience to God. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel was a prophet who faced much opposition, much persecution. And from time to time, it seems in his ministry, God had to give him a little pep talk, had to give him boldness, had to, had to inject some steel into his spine. And here's one of those talks. From the Lord to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses one to nine. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. God makes Ezekiel a watchman. A watchman was given a very specific, very important task. He was to stand on the city walls at the highest point and watch, as his name would suggest. He watches And as soon as there is any sign of an invading army coming, he is to grab his trumpet and blow it to warn the people so that the people will arm themselves, get ready for battle, be able to defend themselves and defend their city. So a faithful watchman watches and blows the trumpet in warning. But a bad watchman, an unfaithful watchman, falls asleep for whatever reason, doesn't watch. And if he is watching, doesn't blow the trumpet. I'll blow it later. Lips are a little sore. Got a midterm next week. Doesn't blow the trumpet. And the invading army comes, slaughters the people, Whose fault is that? The blood is on whose hands? Watchmen. watchman now has bloody hands. Dude, you had one job. You had one job. And you didn't do it, so you're responsible. God has placed us all as watchmen. And we see it. We see the coming wrath of God inching closer and closer as time passes. And so it's it's on us. We have one job. Blow the trumpet. Warn the people. Warn the wicked, the sinners, that this wrath is coming for you if you don't repent. That's what it means to be a faithful Watchman. That's how the Apostle Paul saw his role. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, Woe to me, may I be accursed, if I don't sound the alarm because the people's blood will be on my hands and he will have bloody hands. So Paul and Ezekiel understood that evangelism, warning of the wrath to come, was a matter of obedience. It was a commandment given to them that they were to obey. We can see this also in how Paul identified himself and other Christians. 1 Corinthians 4 One to two, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul calls himself a slave. He explicitly wanted to be called a servant, better translated slave here. It's the word doulos in Greek. Paul often begins his epistles by signing it off as slave of Christ. It's how he wanted to be known. He saw God as his master. He saw God as his authority, and he knew he took commands from him. He also wanted to be known as a steward, a steward of the mysteries of God. Paul was a steward. He wasn't the owner of the message. He wasn't the author or originator of the message. He was the one entrusted with it. God took his message and placed it in the hands of Paul and said, proclaim this Spread this, preach this, and to be a faithful, loyal, trustworthy steward, Paul was to do just that. Paul also calls himself an ambassador, an authorized representative of a king. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul is the ambassador. He's not the king. Our president has ambassadors the ambassador to kenya the ambassador to china the ambassador to brazil they are ambassadors and not the president they represent the president they give the message of the president they speak no more no less to be a loyal ambassador speak the message of the one who sent you So are you starting to see that evangelism is something that you are sent to do, commanded to do, that evangelism is a matter of obedience? Well, we haven't even gotten to the granddaddy of them all, the one you were expecting. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll look at verses 16 to 20 to see the Great Commission you're not yet convinced that evangelism is a matter of obedience, listen to Jesus command you. Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20. Starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command here is simple. Go. Get up. And go take initiative to make disciples, open up your mouth, tell people about Jesus so that they become followers of Him. This is the part we know, but we often skip verse 18, which is actually where Jesus begins talking, actually, where the Great Commission begins. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, notice. Who is this one who is giving the Great Commission? Who is the one who's giving this commandment? The one who was dead and is now alive. The one who is called the Lord. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who commands. The one in the place of highest authority says go. We often call this the great commission. I had a <coughs> Sunday school teacher who was in the army for a while. And one, one whole Sunday school lesson was relaying his experience of his time in, in the military. And he explained what a commission really is. Uh, he explained how, as a soldier, he would be handed an official document. And on this piece of paper, it would say, you, need it would be your name, are to report for duty in Afghanistan. You are to join Troop 42. You are to serve under General Smith from... May 1st to December 1st. A commission is your official orders as a soldier, Uh, the official document that tells you what your duty is. Now, I don't know too much about the military. I would survive in the army for about four seconds. But I do know one thing. In the army... If your superior tells you to do something, you do it. And here we have the ultimate superior telling us to go and make disciples. So this is a matter of obedience. This is your marching orders. All these verses scream out to us that To evangelize is to obey, and to not evangelize is to disobey. We're watchmen, we're slaves, we're stewards, we're ambassadors, and we're soldiers with a commission. We're all under authority. We have a king, we have a master, and a commander. I got to say that evangelism is a joy. And it is a privilege, and it is an unspeakable honor. Uh, We don't deserve it, and wonder of wonders, God has chosen to use us as instruments to bring forth the, the saving message of the gospel to others. So it is a wonderful privilege. It is an amazing joy. We'll talk about that as we continue through this series. But first and foundationally, Let us understand that evangelism is a matter of obedience. It is a delight, but it is also a duty. If you're a Christian here today, evangelism is for you. Uh, This is not just for your small group leader, Uh, this is not just for the people at GOC that you feel have reached a certain level of maturity. If you're a Christian, This is your commission. This is your command from God himself. Well, thirdly, let's look at a love for the lost. A love for the lost. Now, we evangelize because it glorifies God. We evangelize because we are commissioned to do so. And to not do so is to disobey. Third, we do this because we have a heart, we have a compassion for non-Christians. When we see this love for the lost, we've got to realize we weren't the first ones to do this. We weren't the first ones to love the lost. God loved them first for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life John 3:16 We saw the love of the lost in Jesus during his time on earth Matthew 9:36 when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd Luke 13:34 Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is heartbroken here. Jesus' heart is just torn to shreds because his own people have rejected him. And he gives this endearing term, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, says it twice to show tenderness, and he uses this illustration. I, I wanted to be like a mother hen to you and gather you beneath you beneath myself so that I could love you and care for you. But you rejected me, you ran away, and his heart is exposed because of just how much he loves them. And then in the Apostle Paul, Romans 9:1 to 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I don't think I just caught that, but that was wild. I wish I could trade places with them. I wish I could go to hell instead of them. I think that's why Paul has to start by saying, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I read that and I'm like, yeah, you are. you got to be lying. We don't get that. This is unfathomable for us because we don't love the lost like Paul did. We preached the gospel for the same reason Paul preached to his fellow Jews because he loved them. Heaven and hell are real. Life is short. Death is certain. Eternity is long. And that's the truth. That's the reality for all of us, including the ones you love the most. You know, this motivation is not so disconnected from the first. In fact, they're strongly linked. The greatest good for any person is found in worshiping God. The height of joy for any person is found in a life of worship to the one true God. And for the ones we love, we want to give them the greatest joy and the highest good. And that's found in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is a matter of obedience it is a duty, but as I said, it's also a privilege. Uh, sometimes uh, with our leadership team, there's, there's good news to tell. You know, someone gets saved, and I know it, and uh, under-shepherd knows it, and one of the staff people knows it. And at our meetings or when we hang out with each other, it's almost like we're fighting over who gets to say it. Uh, and I, I often steal that privilege. Evoke my rights as the shepherd. Now I tell you someone got saved last week at GOC. Uh, we, we just can't wait to tell this good news. And it's a privilege to be able to share this joyful news with someone. How much more a privilege. How much more an honor that we get to share the greatest news with others evangelism is a matter of obedience it is a duty but it is also a joy it is a joy to call someone into everlasting happiness and i know it's it's hard to get yourself to evangelize i know it's scary but we need never be scared we need never be ashamed to call a man into eternal happiness which is exactly what we're doing that is a great great joy Here's what it comes down to. We evangelize to people because we love them. And we don't evangelize to them because we don't love them enough. We should pray to God, give us a heart for these people. We don't love them enough. Instead, we fear them. We want their salvation, but more so we want their respect. We just want them to like us. You see, not evangelizing is inherently a selfish thing. It's inherently a self-love thing. It's self-preservation and self-focused. Evangelizing, on the other hand, is inherently a kind, selfless, loving thing man, I don't care if I'm going to look foolish. I don't care that I got the butterflies in my stomach. I don't care if this is going to be awkward for me and for you. I'm I'm going to stick out my neck and tell you about Jesus because he can save you. And a life of following him is your greatest joy that will lead to eternal joy. And so let us love the lost and let us call them into the kingdom of God Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Amen and amen. Charles Spurgeon. Let's turn to Romans chapter ten. Romans chapter ten. Let's hear from the Apostle Paul. Romans ten, thirteen to fifteen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Beautiful feet because they carry the message of salvation. Beautiful feet because they bring glory to God. Beautiful feet because they are obeying God. Beautiful feet because they tenderly love those to whom they bring glory this message because they care about the loss so much that they get over themselves and get over their nerves and speak the truth, the saving message of the gospel. And so Grace on Campus got a choice. Beautiful feet or bloody hands.